My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Good morning. This is Lane Jones, pastor of Calkins Baptist Church. And for a number of weeks now, we've been examining the book of Romans, which is the most detailed book on Christian doctrine that you'll find in the entire Bible. And we covered the major section on the doctrines of the faith in the first 11 chapters. When we got to chapter 12, we began discussing what it means to live a life of total commitment to Christ. And so far, we've seen that using your spiritual gifts that God has given you for his glory and the benefit of his children is one of the things that we do when we're committed to the Lord. God gives each of his children different abilities to serve in the church, to help people around them, and we need to take advantage of those. We also saw that we should reflect the character of Christ in a lost world, and there's several different ways we do that. One would be to shoulder my responsibility to my government. And first of all, being a good citizen and submissive to authorities that God places over me, and using, in our context of the United States, using our citizenship to glorify God and advance his kingdom as, as best we can. We also are called to live a life of Christian love, and we're really going to come back to that theme in this particular chapter, Romans 14, where he deals with living with concern about your influence upon other people. And so that's really where we're going to be headed today. If you want to turn in your Bible, you have a chance to do that. You want to go to Romans chapter 14, and we'll begin the study at, right after we pray. Father, we ask for your grace and guidance upon this time. Thank you for those who will listen. May you bless them for it. Pray that you'll help me to be clear, understandable about what your word has to say. And we pray you'd accomplish what you want in each person's life and bless them for their effort to listen to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we tend to want to make our decisions without concern about the impact that they may have on other people. But how do I know how to live in such a way that will impact others for Christ in a positive way? Well, there's actually some issues that are being dealt with in the first part of Romans 14, which we would call handling conflict. And these type of conflicts actually would be between Christians within the believing context. So the first thing we're going to learn from the first four verses is that we're, we are, as, as believers, to accept a weak Christian brother, but not to allow him to get involved in a bunch of doubtful disputes. Now, let me read it to you. It's Romans 14, verses 1 to 4. It says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. But not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Now the word disputes there, back in verse 1, refers to thinking or even arguing. And I checked each reference in the New Testament where this word was used, and all references were dealing with sinful thoughts, which I thought was interesting. So the weaker brother may have or develop anti-biblical convictions, and though from Adam and Eve until the flood, people did not eat meat, I think that's quite clear from the Scripture, there's nothing in either the Old or the New Testaments that should cause a person to be a vegetarian by conviction. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that there's perfectly legitimate, if you want to be a vegetarian for health reasons or just you just don't like the idea of eating meat, there's no problem with that whatsoever. But where the doctrine becomes unbiblical is where you think 
that everyone needs to be a vegetarian or they're not right with God. And there were some people in the first century, and this, it still goes on today, where there are Christian people who think that everybody ought to be vegetarian by conviction. And why do I say this is not a biblical doctrine? It's actually anti-biblical. Well, let me give you some references that I think will be helpful. First of all, man was allowed to eat meat since Noah got off the ark. We're told that in Genesis chapter 9, and I'm going to read verse 3 and 4. This is God speaking, and he says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So you'll notice that clearly in Genesis chapter 9, God said it was okay to eat meat. Now, there's another passage in Exodus chapter 12 that I think really enters into this. And that is that eating of meat was actually part of a special ceremony of worship to God around what we would commonly call today the Passover. So let me read you some verses out of Exodus chapter 12. And again, the first eight verses says this. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Now again, this is part of the Passover celebration, and it really wasn't a celebration the first time through. This was God's protection upon the people by the blood of a lamb, really picturing the coming sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It was a tremendous picture of that. But this surrounded the deliverance of the Israelites from the land of Egypt. Now he goes on. He says, Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So you'll notice that they were clearly commanded in the observance of the first Passover to eat lamb, to eat meat. You also notice that God provided for the priest to eat meat from the sacrifices that were given to him. I'll just give you the reference on that. That's Leviticus chapter 7, verses 33 and 34. So clearly, God was saying in the Old Testament that it was fine to eat meat. Now, what about the New Testament? Did something change when you get there? Well, if you remember in what's called the feeding of the 5,000, and there's another miracle that Christ gave, which was the feeding of the 4,000. In both of those instances, Jesus provided both fish and bread. So again, they're consuming animals, they're consuming fish and bread, and Jesus himself was the one that created that wonderful miracle. Then you say, well, what about, that was before Christ's death on the cross. Well, Jesus ate fish after his resurrection. In Luke chapter 24, when he first appeared to his disciples, they were so astonished, they were um, thinking that maybe they were just seeing a vision or they were seeing some kind of an apparition. And so Jesus, really to help them out, it's in Luke chapter 24, I'm going to read verse 41 to 43. It says, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, do you have any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So you'll notice that Christ is eating fish after his resurrection. And then there's the account in John chapter 21. 
in which Jesus again feeds his disciples fish and bread after his resurrection. Therefore, with all the evidence of the fact that in our fallen world, meat is certainly allowed, saying that everyone must be a vegetarian, it's just not biblical, it's anti-biblical. It's really going against clear teaching of the scripture. Now, now, let me just add something here, and that is my wife is a vegetarian, and it really has nothing to do with conviction. She had developed bladder cancer, oh, probably now 15 years ago or so, and as a result of that, we thought it might be better if we tried some dietary things, and whether or not that had any impact, we're thanking God that she has not gotten the cancer back. It never came back after she was first diagnosed, and it was actually supposed to come back. It was a highly aggressive form of cancer, but in God's graciousness, it never did. Now, she had gone off meat at that point. She went to a vegan diet, which means you're not eating meat, dairy, anything that is at all connected with an animal, and she didn't do that again because she thought it was more biblical. We just thought it might be, in her case, healthy and hopefully to starve any cancer that might get going. And so she's never stopped that. Well, you know, we figure, hey, God's been gracious to us. It's not come back. But we would by no means tell anybody else, you've got to be a vegetarian. And I actually went off meat for about a year just to go with her on that journey. But it got to the place where Honestly, I was feeling a little bit funny from not eating meat for that long, and so I went back on. But we see here that clearly eating of meat is not something that is sinful in the Scripture. And so to say that it is, is, as Paul calls it, the one who is weak eats only vegetables. It's not biblical. Now, it's perfectly fine to do it. It's just not biblical to say that everybody has to do it. So Paul gives the following instructions. So you have people in the church, and some of them believed that it was wrong to eat meat, and others said, no, it's not. So here's how he addresses it. He says, for one believes he may eat all things, but one, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And that's the first instruction. This is to the mature believer who realizes, no, the Bible is not against eating of meat. He says, don't look down on your brother who has adopted this unbiblical standard. Now, he also tells the, the immature believer who thinks everybody should go off meat, he says, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So what he's saying is, okay, if you have come to this unbiblical doctrine, anti-biblical doctrine, that everybody should be off meat, he says, actually, you shouldn't be judging your brother. And so clearly what God is saying here is that both of these people on both sides of the issue ought to show love and compassion for each other. And then there's this vital question. It's in verse 4. It says, who are you to judge another's servant? What a question. Now, this question goes both to the mature and the immature believers. And there's two significant truths that flow from this question. The first one is that the servant or the slave of God, that's the Christian, all of us who have been genuinely born again, we answer only to God. So we do have influence, we need to think about that, but we only answer to God. God is our ultimate authority. So let me just try to illustrate this. Let's say that you're a contractor and you're building a house for a rich client that you know very well. You've built other things in the past for him. So he knows how you work, you know how he works and what he wants, and so you're building this house for him or, or barn or whatever it is. And one day I show up and begin to question what you're doing. In fact, I begin to tell you to stop doing what you're working on, and, uh, you know, you're putting shingles on the roof, let's say, 
and I start telling you, you need to do another part of the project. And since you don't know me, and you realize after a few minutes, I'm not joking. And number two, I'm not stopping. I mean, I'm giving you unsolicited advice about your work and telling you how wrong you're doing it. Finally, and let's hope it's kindly, you uh, stop and you ask me some questions. Are you an inspector? Well, I have to respond, no. So you ask, well, are you related to the homeowner? And so I say, well, actually, I am. I am a relative of the homeowner. That's, that's why I hear, I'm here on the property. So then you got another question, and you say, well, did he send you down here with those instructions you're giving me? So let's say I had come down with instructions from the homeowner. Maybe he didn't like the fact that you were putting shingles on the roof at this point. Now, that would carry some weight, would it not? That would be like the Christian who has legitimate passages in the Scripture that teach something is clearly right or wrong in God's sight. Now, he may come to then to his Christian brother and say, look, you know, the Bible clearly says you shouldn't be cursing. It's wrong. And it's bad testimony, and here's some verses on it. I'd like you to look them up. That would have some weight, because you're actually speaking for the Master, something that the Master has said. But if I am a relative of the homeowner, but be honest with you, I didn't even go up to the house. We weren't talking about this. I had to admit then that I had no instructions from the homeowner. I was just trying to tell you what I thought of what you were doing. Well, you might be kind or you might not at that point. Let's just hope you are. And you might even have another question just based on curiosity. Let's say you ask this one. Are you a builder? To which I have to admit, no, actually I'm not. I'm a pastor, but I have been involved in several building projects, and I've taken a lot of pictures of different progress that our contractors were making on these different projects that I was involved. But no, I'm not a builder. As a matter of fact, I, I really have a hard time building anything. Well, that's a really bad look, don't you think? Why? Well, because I have no experience in that field. Well, let me just say this. We often judge people we know very little about. Now, I know you may uh, get on your brother or brother-in-law or something like that, and, and maybe you know their life story, but you know a lot of times Christian people are judging other Christians. They don't even know them. They don't know what God's been doing in their lives. They don't have any experience in what God is or is not leading them to do. There's no real reason why we have the right to even offer judgment. Also, I'd have to admit in, in my situation that I have no background in this job. Like, I wasn't there when you started. I wasn't involved in the project. So we often judge situations with very little background knowledge on how a decision was made, why a decision was made. But we know, boy, they got it wrong. So many times, if we'd have understood the context, we might not have said that. Also, if you're talking to me and I told you that I have no experience and I have no instructions from the master, then... I have no instructions from the guy who's actually paying you to do the work, who you seem to know what he wants more than I do. So if you're judging your brother or sister in Christ when you have no clear teaching from God's Word, the question is, what are you doing? And that's Paul's whole point. He says, who are you to judge another man's servant? Why are you coming along? You're not the owner of, of, the, of your fellow Christian. You're, God owns them. So why are we stepping in and, and being critical? And then he says that God will hold his own servant up. I like this. He says, to his own master he stands or falls. Look, just like if you were building that house or barn for your, your uh, friend that you've worked for before, he's the guy you got to give an account to about it, not me. So he's saying, 
to God is what he's talking about. To, to his own master, he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand, which means this. God's working in that person's life. If that's a true Christian, God can help him. If you don't have any clear word that's honestly in the Bible and, and it's clear teaching, it's better to keep your mouth shut and not be criticizing a fellow Christian that you disagree with. And aren't you glad that God is loyal to you? And sometimes we underestimate his loyalty to us. That's definitely true. But you know what? We also underestimate God's loyalty to our Christian brothers and sisters. And God can straighten them out. If they're going the wrong direction, and maybe you got this feeling, you got this thought in your brain, and you think they're wrong, well, that may be so. But unless you have some clear teaching, you're probably wiser to keep your mouth shut and not to be your brother or sister in Christ's judge. And uh, let God straighten them out. Now, there's another issue of, of potential conflict here that he brings up among Christians. And this is a dispute where good men can disagree. Honestly, I think when I bring it up and, and read it to you, many of you who've been born again for a long period of time, you, you're going to have different positions on this. So let me go ahead and read it. I'm in verse 5. It says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. So now we're talking about a Sabbath, like a, a day of rest. I'm going to go on. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. So let me just stop there for a second. And let's talk about this dispute where good men disagree. Now the question is whether or not the believer should observe the Sabbath as, and, and this is a little trickier than the first one. The first one, we have all kinds of evidence that, that God has approved of people eating meat in the scriptures from from before Christ to Christ's ministry to after his resurrection. I don't see how you get around all that. And I think if you're trying to get around all that, you're going to have to do some gymnastics and it's not going to have any credibility. But when it comes to this issue of the Sabbath, there are Christians that will fall in three different categories on this one. The first one, there are Christians who believe that you should observe a Sabbath on Saturday. As the original, that's how, by the way, the, the Jewish people observe it, and that is the correct day from the Old Testament, uh, the correct day of Sabbath. So there are people that still believe that that ought to be happening today. Then there are other Christians who think that we should observe uh, like a Sabbath, but it should be on Sunday, uh, the Lord's Day. And there are good people that think that too. And then there are other Christians that say, well, we're not under the Sabbath at all. And then if you take that position, excuse me, you're going to have to uh, really work out also about this idea of public worship. Like, how do you handle that? Because if there's not a special day, then, you know, what do we do about that? So those are all three issues. And so, uh, or three different views of this issue. So let's, let's kind of break them down one by one. How about those that believe that the Sabbath should still be observed on Saturday? Now, if I was arguing for that position, uh, I would make the following points. The first one is that God himself rested on the seventh day, which is Saturday, not Sunday. Sunday's the first day of the week. If you check your calendar, you'd know that was the case. So let me read you Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work that, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And why you could make a good argument for that is that this is way before Moses. This is right after creation. 
And so you, you don't necessarily have to tie that to the Old Testament law. You can say, well, God hallowed Saturday, the seventh day, and so, you know, we're going to hallow that even today. Uh, another way I would argue this is from Exodus chapter 20, which a lot of you probably maybe already thought about, and that is it's one of the Ten Commandments. And so let me read you that, Exodus chapter 20, and I'm going to be looking at verses um, 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven, the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So we see that the Sabbath then, God rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, and hallowed it in Genesis 2. He restates that in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And so then the argument would be, we believe in keeping the other nine of the Ten Commandments, and clearly we do. Why, why not this one? So I do not believe that we keep a Saturday Sabbath today. And uh, you say, Pastor Lane, why, why don't you believe that? Well, um, because of Exodus 31, I'm going to go there. It seems to me that remember Moses is writing this the original audience is the nation of Israel and it seems that the Sabbath is connected with a particular sign between God and the nation of Israel and so I'm going to read you Exodus chapter 31 listen to verses 12 to 17 it says and the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout, all, throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work, on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations. It is a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now, a couple things about that uh, commandment. You'll notice that it was a particular sign that God said on more than one occasion in, the, in just in those verses, that this is a sign between me and the nation of Israel. You'll also notice that violation of this command was punishable by death. And that happened, by the way. Numbers chapter 32, verses, uh, excuse me, chapter 15, verses 32 to 36, there was a man that was gathering sticks on the Sabbath uh, while the children of Israel were out, were out in the wilderness, and they grabbed him, they arrested him, they said, okay, what should we do? And God had already given the command, and so they executed him. So I guess the question is, is this commandment specifically geared to the nation of Israel, and then under their legal system, that death was the penalty? Now, I, first of all, we're not the nation of Israel. The Christian church is different, and there's a whole discussion, by the way, in this, 
But I will just tell you that the church is different than the nation of Israel. And no, we're not going to execute people that don't keep the Saturday Sabbath. And I don't think anybody would be arguing for that today. So why not? Well, because we're not under that command. Now, you'll also notice, I believe it's a mistake to, tr- to totally equate the nation of Israel with the church. So a lot of people take commands and, and different things that were given specifically to the nation of Israel, and God clearly said that. And they take that and they pl- apply that across the board and then try to bring the church under that command. I think that's a mistake. Now, Psalm 105, verses 9 to 11 God told the nation of Israel that the land of Canaan was part of the covenant between him and the nation of Israel. And so that's, by the way, why there's still a dispute over that land today, even over there in in, um, the Middle East right now. That's because there are Jewish people, and I understand their point. They're saying, God gave us that land. It's an eternal inheritance. And there are other peoples of other groups, the uh, Arabic peoples, the Palestinians, and they're saying, but we're on that land, and we're not just surrendering it to you guys. So you can see the conflict is generations old. It's, it's hundreds of years old, and um, it's sad, but that's still going on. Now, we also had another type of, of uh, command that was given to the nation of Israel. It involved circumcision, and again, God was saying this is punishable by death if you don't do it. You read about this in in Genesis chapter 17, verses 8 to 14, when God told this to Abraham. And this is, by the way, pre-law, before Moses is alive. And he clearly said that this was a sign between the nation of Israel, your descendants, and me. And so this was a major issue. This is why I tell you that good men can disagree on on some of these things. There there were a number of people who were believers back in Acts chapter 15, and they were concerned about this issue of circumcision because this was an Old Testament command, and it was serious enough where God said, hey, it's if a person doesn't follow through on this, they're going to they're going to be executed. Now that was again a command for the nation of Israel, for its national identity. So the question was, when people accept Christ, do, are they under that same command? And so listen to the beginnings of this argument in the church. It says, um, this is Paul and Barnabas coming back to Jerusalem to explain what God's been doing in the Gentile regions. And it says, and when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believe, these are very strict, uh, observant Jewish men, and they are believers in Christ, rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, it's very similar to the Sabbath command. It's like, well, this was something God told us that we needed to do, and we need to pass this on to the church. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter was the one that came to Cornelius, who's a Roman, he's not a, not a Jewish man, and all of his household, and just by preaching to them, they were not only born again, but they actually gave evidence, the same evidence that the believers at Pentecost did of the Holy Spirit coming upon them, and this is without them being circumcised. So Peter's drawing back to that event. He says, so 
the, the Gentiles should heard, hear the word of the gospel and believe. He says, so God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he, as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. He said God saved those Gentile people just by faith. And circumcision had nothing to do with it. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And so what Peter is saying, and this is what would eventually become the decision of the church, uh, others would speak, James actually was the guy that really spoke up and um, said this is the way it ought to be, and, and everybody followed that that um, leadership, and that is that clearly the the New Testament church is not the same as the nation of Israel. God has a plan for the nation of Israel. He has a plan for the New Testament church. They're different. And so the New Testament church is international. It's not just one nation. The, uh, the, the plan for the nation of Israel is national. It's, it's one particular nation on the, on the planet, and God has a plan for them. But in Galatians chapter 5, after this had taken place, and now the the church has officially and rightly said, look, salvation is by faith in Christ. It has nothing to do with keeping the law. Paul would write to the Galatian believers who were starting to hear from, from false teachers now who were going back through after this had been hammered out and saying, oh, no, 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 you got to be circumcised. You got to keep the law. You got to do all these things, the Sabbaths, etc." And Paul says this to them in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. I in, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, he's not saying that circumcision is a bad thing by any stretch. He's not saying that at all. What he is saying is this. If you think that's part of your salvation, you're missing the, the gospel. That's what he's saying. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Um, we had our kids circumcised when they were born. Nothing, no problem with that. We just did it for health reasons. It's not that we felt that the scriptures compelled us to do it. We felt it would be good for health reasons. Paul would not be against that. What he's saying is this. If you're doing it in order to think that somehow makes you saved or gives you a leg up, then you're missing Christ. You're, 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 you're throwing away the truth. Verse 3, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. He's saying if you want to keep you know, part of this thing with circumcision, then all of a sudden you're really bringing yourself under the whole thing, and there's all the sacrificial laws and a number of things. So you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. And that was the issue. Not that these things can't be practice, not that uh, it's a wonderful to observe the Passover celebrations, the different things, the feasts that were done, and to think about how they point to the gospel. Those things are, there's nothing wrong with that. We had a Passover Seder at our church uh, just um, a few months back, and uh, enjoyed probably a couple of years now. But we enjoyed that very much, as, as our uh, the guy who was giving it was pointing out to these different ways that, that this really points to Christ and his coming. So there's nothing wrong with that unless you think you're getting to heaven by the law, by observing these things. That's the problem. Let me read it to you again. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. You have forsaken the reality that Christ saves people not because they have made themselves worthy, 
but because of his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient and we can place our faith in him. So there are some that think that the Sabbath needs to be observed on Saturday. And again, they're perfectly, it's, it's fine if they want to do that, but it's, it's not biblical to say everybody has to do that because um, we're not under the law. Now, there's a second uh, group, and they would say, well, the Sabbath should still be observed, but it should be observed on Sunday. Now, if I was going to argue this position, I would use the following arguments. First of all, the New Testament believers seem to be worshiping on the first day of the week. And so let me give you a couple passages about that. Now, the first reference I'll give you is Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. The Apostle Paul was traveling near an uh, area called Troas. And so it says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And what does it mean they came together to break bread? Well, it seems to be indicating that they were coming together to observe the Lord's Supper and to have a worship service. And so that's the breaking of bread. And so notice Paul's preaching to them. It sounds like their weekly service. Now, another example of this would be 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and I'm reading verses 1 and 2. And Paul's talking about raising an offering for some of the believers in Jerusalem who were very much impoverished because of circumstances that had gone on down there. And so it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may, uh, as he may uh, uh, proper, that there be no collections when I come. So there's this laying up of these monies, and it was done on the first day of the week, which would seem to indicate again that they are uh, they're, that they're coming together on Sunday in order to worship God and to and to give offerings. And by the way, there's some um, historical evidence that this was going on. Uh, and it even goes back to, I'm not necessarily that particular on Sunday, but there's an ancient letter from a, a Christian person who was writing to a Roman official, I believe, and just describing the Christian service. And one of the things he said they do, he said, we gather together, we pray for people around us, we take up a collection for the poor. See, that would very much seem to harmonize with what Paul's saying on the first day of the week. You'll also notice in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, the Apostle John says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, the Lord is Jesus there, so what's the Lord's day? That would seem to indicate the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And they said, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. So I would argue, if I was arguing for the uh, Sabbath observance only on Sunday, that, that it's very possible that John is, is calling the Lord's Day the day of Christ's resurrection. Again, he doesn't say anything more, so you could argue on the other side. You could say, well, I think that's the day of, of when God rested. But it seems to be a different way of saying it, not the Sabbath, but the Lord's Day, um, which, again, Christians seem to, from early on, worship on the day of Christ's resurrection. Uh, this also a way for New Testament believers then to say, well, we're still keeping the ten, all the Ten Commandments, we're keeping the Sabbath commandment, we're just doing it on Sunday. Also, there are people that would, uh, if they think that, that the church has replaced Israel, they might be in that same category. Now, there, that's a fine option to take. I'm convinced it's, it's not necessarily a biblical command. I don't agree that it's a command, but I, because again, we're not under the law, 
And uh, secondly, because God clearly stated that one does not have to keep a special day. You say, well, where is that? Well, it's in our text, Romans chapter 14. Let me read verse 5 and 6 together and, and listen to what it says. It says, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, that is radically different. That's just verse 5. That is radically different than if you don't observe the Sabbath, you're going to execute the guy. What God is saying here is, okay, one person esteems one day above another. That means he takes a Sabbath and says, I'm going to worship God on a certain day. And you'll notice he didn't even say which day it would be. He just said one day above another. Then he said another esteems every day alike. So for him, there is no special Sabbath. And then he said, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Not you'll be executed if you don't agree. He's saying, you have a right to to make a different decision. Just be convinced in your own mind. Follow your conscience is what he's saying. Isn't that interesting? Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. So there are people that are going to take a special day. And by the way, I have gotten to the place where I like to take Sunday or at least a 24-hour period somewhere around Sunday, whether it be Saturday night through Sunday night or, or, or Sunday morning through Sunday night. I like to take a 24-hour period and be able to spend a little bit more time thinking about the Lord, keep the, keep the sports off, keep the news out of my mind, and to really focus more on the Lord. It's been helpful to me. But I cannot say that it's got to be that way. You say, well, well, because God said here, you have a right to be fully persuaded in your own mind. You have a right to follow your conscience. Now, there's also a passage in Colossians chapter 2, and I want to read that to you. It's it's verses uh, 13 to 17, and he says this. He says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So he's talking to Gentiles. These people have not gone through Jewish circumcision. God has forgiven them for all their sins. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. So these, some of these Old Testament requirements, like circumcision, like um, uh, Sabbath-keeping, He's saying that we're not under them. Having disarmed principalities and powers, I'm continuing reading, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So he's saying no one should be judging the other brother when it concerns food. So there are certain foods that under the law you couldn't eat. Well, he's saying don't. that's no longer a standard. And there's other passages that show the same thing, by the way. So he mentions food and drink, which would be part of the dietary restrictions from the law. Then he also mentions the idea of new moons or Sabbaths. So clearly he is saying that we're not under the Sabbath commandment. Now, God's, this is important because God is saving souls across the world. That means Christians are going to find themselves in a variety of cultures and situations where there, there are going to be different responses that would be necessary. For instance, what about a Jewish Christian living in Israel? And he's got a business. Well, he can't work on Saturday. That's the Sabbath under the Jewish system. And certainly you understand they're going to observe the Sabbath and he's not going to be able to do business and he shouldn't. 
He is a Christian, even though he doesn't feel he's under the Sabbath command, should be respectful of that. And you can't blame him if, if he would f- find it in his heart to worship on Saturday. Uh, however, it does also, what about Christians in other places? What about doctors, nurses? What about someone who has a factory job and he's got to work either on Saturday or on Sunday? Can he have a different day to worship the Lord? Now, again, I think it makes sense that we worship consistently on Sunday. I think that's a, a good thing to do. And Christians, again, have done that from ancient days, from what we see from the history books. But that's not a requirement in the scriptures. What God says is be fully persuaded, be fully convinced in your own mind. Now, the third position that the believer is no longer under the Sabbath, I'm convinced that that's actually what Romans 14, 5, and 6 are saying, that that I'm convinced that Christians may observe a special day, which I like to do, um, but they're not required to do so. So, for instance, the Christian who is a um, an athlete and his sport plays on Sunday, to be honest with you, I couldn't do that with a good conscience because I just would be worried about, well, I'm, I'm letting people you know, come to watch me play and, and um, they should be worshiping the Lord. So I, that's, that's me. I, I wouldn't be able to do that with a good conscience. But I also am not to be judging my Christian brother or sister who does that. So this also leaves us with an interesting dilemma, and that is, well, how does liberty regarding the day of worship fit with our need for public worship? And clearly, we are to get together, and we're to do it with a local congregation of believers. So there are some groups of believers who will get together, and they'll worship on Saturday. And and although, again, I don't think that's probably the, the in my opinion, the, the best day to do it. I think Sunday would be better. But, but again, that's my opinion. So I'm going to worship on Sunday. But I don't think by any stretch that God is condemning them if they worship him on Saturday. Uh, listen to what the, the, the basic principle is, though. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of, of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So one of the things we have to think about in public worship is trying to be a blessing to people around us and thinking about what they may be needing. Like, I I don't want to be a person that's just walking into the church, hearing a message, and walking out without talking to anybody. I want to try to be a blessing to brothers and sisters around me. I need to to consider one another. I need to consider my brothers and sisters and what maybe I can give to them. And I know some of you may say, well, I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I don't think I have anything to give. You'd be surprised. Sometimes on those very days when you feel like, boy, I, I don't think I should be talking to anybody. I need, I need to help myself. Sometimes on those days, number one, you get encouragement by having conversations with other believers in the, in the church. And number two, You'd be surprised the times you're able to be a blessing to them, too, in spite of your discouragement, in spite of what you're going through. So we are commanded that we need to get together and worship together publicly, and that's a good thing and a wonderful privilege that we have. And Christians will literally risk their lives across the world in order to do that. 
Now, there's also some principles then to follow when Christians disagree, and let me go through those quickly. It's found in verses 6 through 13 of Romans 14. It says, He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. So he comes back to that one about the eating of meat. And what he's saying is the guy who is eating the meat is giving God thanks before he eats it. That's what Christians do. We thank God for our food. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. So here's another person. He's a vegetarian. And even though he may be wrong on that position, he is, by trying to do the right thing, he's trying to do the right thing before God, and he doesn't think God wants him to eat meat. So he's not going to eat it, and he's still going to give thanks for his meal, though there's no meat on it. So what's he saying? Appreciate your brother's heart that both of these guys, though they are differing, and one is actually more correct than the other, they ought to both appreciate each other's love for the Lord. They're, they're acting the way they are out of a sincere heart, and that means something. A second principle is remember your influence on other people. Verse 7 says, for none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. Okay, so let's say that I have a, a friend, and he doesn't believe that it's right to eat meat. I'm not going to invite him to my house and put a steak in front of him. That would not be fair. It's, it, it, would, it would violate his conscience. He'd feel guilty about that. And so I need to be, and, and by the way, if I had my brother over who doesn't believe in eating meat, I'm not going to eat meat in front of him. I'm going to go without it that day. Why? I don't want to use my liberty to hurt him. Another um, person might be uh, again. Let's say that they believe it's it's that you got to worship on on Saturday and you shouldn't do any work on Saturday. If I'm living in a Jewish neighborhood, then I may very well observe that command, even though I don't believe I'm under it, just to be a blessing to those around me. There, I know a, a, a pastor who was living in New York City in a hev- heavily uh, Jewish area, and the garbage went out either Sunday or, or Saturday sometime. And so one of his ministries to his Jewish neighbors was going and getting their garbage and setting it out for them because they, didn't, they thought that was wrong. So we can have a good influence on other people if we're just thoughtful and thinking about what would be a blessing to them, not just thinking about what I want. And so, again, if I had a friend, he believes that ham is wrong, I'm not going to stick a ham steak in front of him. I'm not going to eat it in front of him. I'm going to be, I'm going to respect his opinion, even if I disagree with it. Remember your influence on other people. A third principle, remember your life is about God, not about you. So he says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. The big picture is whether or not we know Christ as Savior. So we see three principles so far. Number one, appreciate your brother's heart. Even if you disagree with him, if he's trying to do right, uh, you may discuss it here and there, but but don't be a a condemning person looking down your nose. Number two, remember your influence on other people. Think about how do my actions weigh in with other people. Number three, remember your life is about God, not about you. And so what, what does God want me to do? Not what, what do I want to do? Number four, drop your critical spirit and leave the judging to God. 
So in verse 10 to 12, he says, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Which means this. I'm going to give an account for myself, not, not somebody else. Verse 12, So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. So remember that to just drop your critical spirit, leave the judging to God. He'll take care of it. Number five, determine not to put a stumbling block in your brother's way. And so this is the verse we're going to end with. It says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And again, that means that I'm going to think about my decisions and how they're going to influence people around me. For instance, I do not think it would be wrong if I see a farmer out in his field and he's haying on Sunday. Now, some people think it's wrong, and they should they should observe that. I think that's fine, but I don't think it's wrong. But in if, if I'm a farmer as a pastor, I'm probably not going to do that because I know some people in the community would be shocked that the pastor would be out there. So I got to think about my influence. I got to think about how God will would want me to act in my context, my situation. So what do we conclude from this? Number one, Christians do not normally come to Christ scrubbed and clean. We have to be cleansed from our sins by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Many times people come to Christ with a truckload of regrets and from their life before meeting Christ, and so they don't, we don't all come understanding everything. We come with our, in our ignorance, we come in our weakness. Number two, Christians do not normally remain scrubbed and clean throughout life. We still fail. Christians still have a sin nature that's just as evil as ever. That's why Peter told us to abstain from fleshly lusts because they're going to war against your soul. In fact, as we go through life, it only gets worse. So our, our, our old nature. So what that means is, is that there are going to be Christians who are going to think differently and they're going to act differently. Sometimes they're right and sometimes they're not. Number three, Christians are at a whole range of mental capabilities. And I'm glad God doesn't have an IQ test. I'm glad that you don't have to have a certain score of, of mental abilities in order to become a Christian. Well, you know what that means? That means everybody doesn't have the same reasoning skills. Everybody doesn't have the same background or education. And so there are going to be Christians who are going to see things completely different, whether it be on the political arena or the social arena or even what the Scriptures are teaching. There are some that are not going to be uh, as logical as others. There's going to be some that are going to be uh, definitely more able to understand what the Scriptures are saying. Some will be easier um, to, to deceive and to fool. But I'm thankful that God doesn't give us an IQ test in order to be saved. Number four, Christians are at a whole range of maturity levels. This means that some issues, little or big, Christians can get deceived on them. They can buy into the, some of these wacky things that are on the internet. And you see a, a guy, and he's supposed to be a Christian, and he's like talking about something that's wacky, and you say, well, this is ridiculous. Okay. Well, God doesn't say, well, you can't be saved, and you can't belong to me if you're not a certain maturity or a certain mental ability. I'm thankful God wants to save people the good, the strong, the weak, the, 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 the people with a terrible background, God wants to save them all if they'll only turn to him. The problem is not God willing to save us. It's, willing, it's us being willing to be forgiven. Number five, Christians are called to show love and compassion toward brothers and sisters with whom they disagree. And number six, God has given his children not a rule for every situation, 
but freedom within boundaries. Because, you know, your love for God and your Christian brother and your fellow man, those are the three biggies. Those are the three big commands for the Christian person. You know, a lot of people reject Christ with the foolish thought that becoming a Christian leads to a lot of rules in which, in turn, take away your freedom. And let me push back on that for as we close today. I'm going to argue that reasonable rules, and that's the key, they have to be reasonable. Reasonable rules are the foundation of freedom. Do you recall the restaurant that has the slogan, no rules, just right? I feel that statement is absolute nonsense. So let's say you go into a restaurant where they really practice that mantra. You wait to get your seat like normal, but shortly after you sit down a group of people, then each of them is much bigger than you are, and you're, and you're, uh, the people that are with you, they, they start to tell you to get up that they want your booth, to which you say that you waited to get this booth for over 20 minutes, and you suggest that they go back out and wait like everybody else in the lobby. However, they reply, that idea that we have to wait for a table sounds like a rule to me. There are no rules here, remember? That begins a whole cycle of no rules that uh, can be thrown at people. For instance, you're waiting patiently for someone to come, and when you finally do get another table, and your waitress never, never comes over. Several people who've come in after you seem to slip her some money, and, and she waits on them. They've got their food. They're well into eating it. And you say, well, you, you, you know, when are you going to come over and serve us? Well, that sounds like a rule that everybody in here has to be served. Uh, we don't have any rules in here. Now, you order. And when you got your order come back because you had to bribe the girl, when your order comes back, it isn't what you ordered. And you say, well, what about, what about, I, you know, I ordered chicken and you gave me fish. I don't like fish. And they say, well, to think that you have to get what you ordered is a rule. And there are no rules here. Someone stops by, takes some of the best food on your plate that you do have, and you say, you can't do that. Well, why can't I? There are no rules here. So if you're following the no rules mantra, one thing you can get out of this, and that is you can go out without paying because that's a rule too, isn't it, that you have to pay. You see, it doesn't make any sense, does it, that there are no rules just right. Nothing works. You have anarchy. You have you have uh, meaninglessness without rules. Rules, if they are reasonable, are actually the path to enjoyment and freedom in life. And here are God's three big rules. Number one, love the Lord your God with everything you got in your mind, heart, soul, everything. Number two, love your Christian brother. Number three, love your neighbor as yourself. That's really what Romans 14 is hammering on. At number two there, love your Christian brother. When they're wrong, when they're right, love them anyway. That's what God is telling us, and I pray that you and I will practice it. May the Lord bless you. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Everlasting life and light, he free.